0: forgetfulness in a way. And we're going to shift now into our sermon for this morning. And as we continue through the book of Philippians this week, we're going to continue to see in Philippians 2 this morning how Paul is committed to unpacking what he said in, in his thesis, if you will, in 127 about how believers are to conduct their lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you remember last week, we, we walked through uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and we saw Paul's first explanation of this, that a life worthy of the gospel was one of Christ-like self-humbling that counted others more significant than ourselves and looked to the interests of others over our own. This lifestyle of humility was that of Christ Jesus, who went from the form of, of God to dying on the cross as he gave up every right that he had for the sake of providing redemption and reconciliation for a world of sinners. And Paul wanted them to see last week that that living this way would promote unity and empower them to work towards the common goal of gospel ministry. Well, as we get into this week's text in verses 12 through 18 of Philippians 2, Paul will show us another way, to live lives worthy of the gospel. Whereas we saw last week that a life worthy of the gospel was one of Christ-like self-humbling, this week Paul will show us that a life worthy of the gospel is one submitted to God's will. Life worthy of the gospel is one submitted to God's will. He does this first by laying out that point in verses 12 and 13. By Then by showing that this type of lifestyle would be characterized by otherworldly contentment. And finally, that it would result in mutual joy and encouragement. So let's read this text together as we continue to be taught by Paul what living lives worthy of the gospel looks like in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Paul continues from his train of thought last week. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for Paul's reminder to us this morning, Lord, about what gospel-centered lives look like. Lord, may we be taught, may we be transformed by your word this morning. May we be different as we leave This morning's worship time than when we came. And may it be for your glory, may it be for the redemption and reconciliation of this world, all for your good pleasure. Lead us in your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So connecting today's passage to what he said in verses 1 through 11, Paul shows us again that his main point is that a life worthy of the gospel is one submitted to God's will. He begins by saying, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He reminds his friends, the beloved of Christ, as he calls them here, That if Christ was obedient to the will of the Father all the way to death on the cross, they should continue to be obedient to the Lord's will for their own lives, as they have always been, but especially while he is apart from them right now, sitting in prison for the gospel. This obedience was indicative of their living lives worthy of the gospel and would take place through their submission to God's will as they worked out their salvation with fear and trembling. Note here that he says the working out of their salvation, not the working towards or the working for their salvation, right? This isn't a call to legalism or works righteousness for them to obtain their salvation through their own actions, but was an exhortation and a call for them to continually work and bring to completion the salvation that God had already begun in them right this was this was a call for them to work thoroughly to take pains and laboring through the expenditure of energy the salvation that god had already begun in them right god does not save us so that we can have our ticket punched to go to heaven while we sit in the train station waiting for that departure instead we know he saves a people for himself so that they will be blessed to be a blessing, as he reminds Abraham in Genesis 12, right? This is a call for active faith. In other words, he says, I know that the Lord has saved you. I've seen it because you've obeyed up to this point. So continue to work out that salvation that the Lord is doing by being active participants in your faith. They do this as their active participants in their salvation by living lives that were clear evidence of the salvation that they enjoyed through the grace of the gospel. But he continues, they were to do this through an attitude of fear and trembling, since it was God who was at work in them, right? Remember back what he said in chapter 1, verse 6, when he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. They could confidently live lives like this because of the fact that it was God who was working in them and would bring their salvation to completion. But their confidence would have to be coupled with a healthy fear and a righteous awe for the one by whom they were saved in the first place. Right. This means that, they, that, that we are not called as disciples to live lives of licentiousness, feeling that because God has forgiven us, we now have the license to sin. Nor do we live lives of prideful selfishness that are, that are committed to our own desires any longer. Instead, because it was God who gave us the gift of salvation, because it was God who died on the cross for us, because it was God who allowed us to respond in faith, we now participate in that salvation by living faithful lives in fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who continues to work in us and will bring that work to completion at the day of Christ when he returns. We don't want to live lives any longer that offend God or deviate from his will for our lives. Instead, we listen to the Holy Spirit who guides us, who leads us, who empowers us to live as new creations in the kingdom of God. And since it is the Holy Spirit who leads us in lives submitted to his will, they will see that their working out of their salvation through faithful living was both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As we work out our salvation, God is working in and through us for his good pleasure and glory by transforming first our minds, right, our will, and then our actions to work. Again, I feel like kind of like last week when we read the first two verses and we almost had to take a deep breath because it was so much packed into so few verses. I feel like we need to take a moment here and just simply summarize what Paul's trying to say. And if I could, I would say it like this. In order to live lives worthy of the gospel, we will need to obey the will of God by submitting our lives to Him while we work out our salvation with fear and trembling through the Spirit's guidance. Right? Once we say, as we just sang in that great hymn, you know, all to Jesus, I surrender. Once we we say, My life is in your hands, I surrender my life, my, my will to your will, we can then participate in the salvation that the Lord has given us by actively pursuing to live as new creations in Christ, whose hearts, hands, and heads are totally transformed and guided by God's spirit. Again, this is about living with that kingdom perspective that Paul has shown us throughout his letter so far. We remember that our citizenship is in heaven as a result of the salvation God worked in us, and now we live on earth for the sake of his kingdom, and the reconciliation and redemption of all things. A life worthy of the gospel is one submitted to God's will as we live into the Christ-like humility we talked about last week and give ourselves over to the will of God to direct our steps as we work out our salvation together in unity for the shared goal of building for the kingdom of God. And with all that foundation kind of laid out and set in verses uh, 12 and 13 here, Paul continues this section by showing, first, the, another otherworldly attribute of living this way, and second, the, the fruit of this type of lifestyle and what that would be. So he begins first in verses 14 through 16 by showing us that a life submitted to God is characterized by otherworldly contentment right last week we talked about how it would be characterized by otherworldly humility this week he goes on to show it would also be characterized by otherworldly contentment he says do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of god without blemish in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Whew! I feel like someone needs to go back and tell Paul uh, the beauty of periods in his sentence, because that's all one big, long sentence there in three verses. But he begins here that as we live lives in obedience to God's will, it is vital that we learn to do everything without grumbling, which is that, that inward secret discontentment we have against God's will or against the circumstances of our life, or against, or, or without arguing, which is that intellectual questioning and, and, um, and criticisms directed negatively either towards God or towards others. In other words, we are not to live lives of secret grumblings or outward criticisms towards God, but are to com- be committed to contentment in all that we say and do as we are submitted to God's will for our lives. Paul most likely is making this point because perhaps some in Philippi were grumbling about the suffering they were experiencing. Maybe they were grumbling about what happened to Paul and now he's in prison. Maybe they're, they're complaining about the disunity that has come about in the midst of the body. But but Paul wants them to see that not only does complaining and quarreling erode and destroy the unity of the church, it was primarily evidence that they had not submitted their lives to the lordship and direction of Jesus quite yet. Again, what does obedience to the father look like? It looks like it looked like Otherworldly humility of the the otherworldly humility of Christ in verses 6 through 11, but it also looks like the otherworldly contentment of Christ, as we read last week, as he went to the cross without grumbling, without complaining, without arguing. Right? If you go back and read through the Gospels at the life of Jesus, when things seemed unfair, our Lord did what he knew was the will of the Father. When others didn't listen to him, he prayed more earnestly for them. When things didn't go the way that perhaps he wanted as as, as a human, he looked to God and trusted his will for every step of his life. And as we read in in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to slaughter and like a sheep That before it cheers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The life of our Lord teaches us what true humility, but also what true contentment in God's will should look like as we avoid complaining or grumbling about the circumstances of our lives. He says that instead, when we live lives of otherworldly contentment that avoid grumbling or arguing, we will be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, this phrase, cro- crooked and twisted generation, is directly drawn from Deuteronomy 32.5, where, where the grumbling and complaining of the Israelites actually caused them to be the crooked and twisted generation that God is talking about. His point here in using that phrase is to show them... That grumbling and complaining, like with the Israelites, will make the church indistinguishable from the warped and crooked generation around us. Right, the word crooked actually in Greek is skolios. It's it's the word that we get, scoliosis. It means to, to deviate from the standard. And twisted means to distort that standard. Both assume that there is a standard by which we should follow. And we know here on this passage, it is God's will for our lives. And this is what a world that is in opposition and rebellion to God's lordship looks like. It's one that has deviated from the standard and complains when things don't go the way they want. It's one that has twisted the standard and argues when their distortion of the truth does not bring about the results that they had hoped for. Otherworldly contentment, says Paul, will naturally set us apart from a world that sees complaining as normal or sometimes as a good thing. There's actually this, this article from the New York Times from May 2013 where a psychologist talks about just how nonchalant our culture is about complaining. The psychiatrist or psychologist says this. Squelching a complaint is unhealthy since you are bottling in your dissatisfaction, right? It's better to get it out than to keep it inside. Some complaints actually serve as icebreakers or conversation starters, right? Think about, you know, you get caught in the rain and you turn to someone and go, ah, terrible weather we're having, right? You're complaining about the weather, but hey, now we can have a conversation. Complaining can create rapport Especially if we complain to people in a similar situation, right? You're on the bus and the bus breaks down and we go, I don't know why we take public transportation. It's never, never works. It's never good enough, right? Creates rapport. He said that that men seem to complain to boost their egos and to make them feel better about themselves, right? Think about any time you've seen any man play any sport or video game or anything competitive, right? We go, ah, you know, this thing is rigged. Oh, the, the basketball, the hoop's too high, or you know, we complain either about the situation or we complain about other people. Well, if I just had better teammates, I would be I would do significantly better at whatever. No, we we know we this psychologist is showing how we use complaining in in such a natural way that we think we we become desensitized to it and we actually think it's it's okay, it's not a big deal. He actually says in the end of this, in this end of this article, he says, the Bible actually says there's a difference between good complaining and bad complaining. We can complain, he says, we must complain about social injustice to show that we care, but with the complaint must come action. You know, I, I don't want to get into it, but between you and me, I would not call that complaining, right? There's a difference between grumbling and complaining and being Discontent with the state of the world. And we're actually gonna we're gonna keep talking about that. But all I wanted to, to show us in that article is to show that this world does not see complaining as that big a deal. But when we look at this text, what we understand is that complaining is not just this general sense of discontentment, it is us saying we do not trust and are not happy with how God has led our lives to this point. And Paul's point is when we do all things without complaining or arguing, living in this otherworldly contentment, we will immediately look distinct and separate from the crooked and twisted generation around us and will stand out like lights in the world by being blameless, pure, and above reproach. He says that avoiding grumbling will make us so distinct from the world that we will look like stars in the night sky. I mean, I don't know how many of you guys take the time in your lives to go out and look up at the stars at night. I remember when when Heidi and I went on our one year anniversary, we went camping in New Hampshire. I remember that was one of the first times in a while where we took the time to just lay and look at the stars. And I remember because we're out in the woods in New Hampshire, it was really easy to see the stars. And when you look up at the stars in a dark black night sky, you cannot help but see them, right? And that's what Paul is trying to say here, that that you can look up at the stars in the sky and not care that they're there, but you cannot help but notice that they are completely distinct from the rest of the sky. His point is that as we do all things without grumbling or complaining, people may not necessarily care about our witness in that way but they will not help but notice that we are completely different and distinct from how the world normally treats the circumstances of their lives. And this happens, he concludes here, as we hold fast to the word of life. He is saying that we can only avoid grumbling as we hold firmly to the word of life. This goes back to the point I was making in the children's message about spiritual forgetfulness. How can we complain and grumble against God when we are committed to and grasping firmly to the gospel truth that you were dead in your trespasses and are now made new and alive in Christ Jesus to glorify him through your lives for the kingdom and to enjoy his presence forever, right? As you're holding fast to that word of life, as you're committed to the scripture and to what God has done for us throughout all of redemptive history, Paul's point is you will naturally avoid grumbling and complaining because the joy and the contentment that you find in what God has always done for us will be the thing you dwell on, not your present circumstances. And what's more is that the word to hold fast to here also has the implications of holding forth. So as we drink deeply from the word, it's like, it's like having a cup, right? As we drink deeply from the word of life that helps us live lives of contentment and submission to God's will, we also hold it out. We hold it forth for the crooked and twisted generation to drink from the hope and the redemption that the gospel offers us. Because the gospel is the remedy for the discontentment of this world. Are you unhappy about the pain and suffering around you? The gospel has an answer for that. Are you unhappy because of the guilt and the anxiety that you daily face? The gospel has an answer for that. Are you unhappy about the circumstances of your life? Brothers and sisters, the gospel has an answer for that. And Paul's point is as we are drinking daily from this word of life. As others come to us and say, why are you so calm? When there's a global pandemic, why are you so calm when there's racial injustice? Why are you so calm when things aren't normal anymore? You can hold forth the word of life that says, my friend, the world is not normal. The world is not the way we want it to be. This world is broken, and God has given us the answer in Jesus Christ. As disciples of Jesus who have submitted our lives to his will for our lives, Because we know that he is the one who gives us life to the fullest, we should be also holding out the word of life for others to drink from as well. As one commentator puts it, if the word of life is lost, the church becomes a black hole rather than a shining star. When we live lives of grumbling and arguing, we become a black hole of the peace, of the unity, of the contentment we are supposed to offer the world instead of being a beacon of hope that we are called to be. So Paul shows us through this image that a life submitted to God is committed to otherworldly contentment that avoids grumbling and complaining against God. And Paul says that if they lived lives of otherworldly contentment like this, he would be proud and able to say that his labor for the gospel in Philippi would not be in vain. And this leads him to his final point in this text this morning, namely that a life submitted to God results in mutual joy and encouragement. He concludes in verses 17 and 18, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial, uh, sacrificial of, of your faith, sorry, the sacrifice of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Just as Christ's self emptying life that we read in verse six led, uh, sorry, his self emptying life of humility led to his death, Paul sees this as a very real possibility for himself as well. Just as he used Christ's life as an illustration for the humility that they were to have, here he uses his own life to illustrate the contentment and joy that they were to have in Christ. The imagery that Paul uses here is of the Philippians as being priests who were offering their lives sacrificially and faithfully in service to God. This is why he described their lives living, being lived worthy of the gospel in verse 15 as ones that were pure and without blemish. These are the same words that we read for, in the Old Testament for the way that the sacrifices were supposed to be, right? The unblemished lamb, the perfect one. He says, when we live like that, our lives will be perfect sacrifices unto God. And he says here, their lives were sacrifices before God. And his was like a drink offering poured out in service to them before God. Now, I don't know how well we are all acquainted with, um, with, with the specific offerings and the ways they were done. But a drink offering was one that was done both in jewish sacrifices as well as pagan ones and in this sacrifice after an animal had been burned a priest would pour wine or water or some other liquid on top of the hot altar causing it to immediately vaporize and turn to steam that would rise up and go to god just like the use of incense that would rise up and was was thought to be a pleasing aroma to god this drink offering that turned to steam that rose to God was supposed to symbolically take the sacrifice and send it to God. And what Paul is saying here is that he viewed his ministry in relation to their gospel-worthy lives as the puff of steam that came after the real sacrifice was made. I mean, can you talk about true humility? This is Paul. This is This is the saint. This is the, the, the church planner, the missionary. And he says, your lives are the true sacrifice. Mine is the puff of steam that just sends it up to God. In his eyes, the thing worth rejoicing about and holding before God was their faithful and sacrificial lives for the gospel, not his quote unquote little work that was added to it in some ways. Again, Paul is showing us both the Christ-like humility and the otherworldly contentment that he has described over the last 16 verses through his own life here. As he's sitting in prison, not sure if he's going to make it out alive, he says, I have no reason to complain or grumble against where God has brought me because my life has led to your lives being perfect sacrifices for our God. And for that, we can mutually have joy and encouragement and rejoice in thanksgiving before God. Even if he were to die, it would further exemplify the good work that they were doing in living lives submitted to God's will. The result of sacrificial gospel ministry as we live lives committed to God is mutual joy and encouragement for the church as they rejoice In the God who is working among them, bringing to completion what he has started in them. I really think that this passage is one of the clearest descriptions of the countercultural nature of living lives worthy of the gospel. Paul has shown that as we work out our salvation through our participation in the Spirit's transformation of our minds and hearts, we will live lives that are filled with such otherworldly contentment in God's will. That we will shine like lights in the darkness as our lives are being poured out before God as pure sacrifices. And all of this, as we have seen, is to show us that a life worthy of the gospel is one submitted to God's will. As I was thinking about how I was going to close this morning, I was going to lay out several applications from the text. But I think that we've seen throughout this passage so far how clearly Paul has laid out that that he's calling us to live distinct and inviting lives that avoid complaining that that we're to be committed to God's work and not our own and that we're supposed to do this for his good pleasure and his glory instead of our own so instead i want to close with one final kind of word of warning which bringing back what we talked about in the children's message that of spiritual forgetfulness Because remember, our sermon series in Philippians is titled Joy No Matter What. And Paul is trying to show us through his own life and by describing how the lives of disciples are to live, uh, are to look living lives worthy of the gospel, how we are called to joy no matter what. And the greatest reason for grumbling and arguing against God in our lives is spiritual forgetfulness. We we find that joy is difficult when we forget all the ways that God has been good for to us. One of the most frequent and, and clearest commands of God throughout scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, is remember. Remember who I am. Remember I am the God of Abraham, of Jacob, of Isaac. Remember that I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. Remember all the things I've done for you. And this isn't because God is this narcissistic God who wants people to be constantly thinking about him. It's because he knows our natural tendency towards forgetting him, towards forgetting his goodness and running back to the ways of the world that we've left. Right? We are very much like the Israelites who have taken one step away from the Red Sea being parted and saying, golly gee, I am hungry, Lord. Why didn't you just leave me in Egypt where I could have had some good food? We are one step away from the Red Sea where we're going, man, I am super thirsty. I can't think of one time when God has fulfilled that. need. I need to go back to Egypt and and go back to the worldly pleasures that, that the Egyptians were giving us, forgetting the slavery, the bondage that we were when we were slaves, right? We who were slaves to sin constantly need to be reminded that that was our past, that that was who we are, and that through God's goodness and through his grace, we now are new creations in him. So as I said it last week, I'll I'll say it again this week as we close. If we're to have otherworldly humility and the otherworldly contentment of Christ that sets us apart from the world as those whose lives are worthy of the gospel, it must begin, as Paul says here, as we hold firmly to the word of life, both to Jesus, the word of God, and to his gospel and the totality of scripture that speaks to that. Because we have to think, are we prone to thinking too highly of ourselves? When you hold fast to the word of life, you will remember that the gospel says that you are but a sinner destined to destruction apart from the amazing grace of God. And through his power and through his grace and through his spirit, you are now a new creation who can live a life for his glory. Are you prone to complaining because your life isn't going the way you wanted it to? Remember, the gospel says that this world isn't the way that God wants it to be. But he has done everything to begin the great work of restoration and reconciliation especially as we work out our salvation for the sake of the world that needs hope and restoration. So if we are to live lives worthy of the gospel that are in submission to God's will for our lives, we need to live daily in the gospel of grace that reminds us of who we are in Christ and how to be content and joyful no matter what as the result of all that he has done for us. Let's do that now as we go to prayer in humility and contentment. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that although we are prone to complaining, that we are prone to arguing, and prone to discontentment in our lives, Lord, that you have never left us or forsaken us in that state. We thank you that Even though we complain that you have saved us from slavery of sin, even though we've complained and been discontent in your ways sometimes, that you continue to make us new creations, making us more and more into the image of God each day. May we live in the gospel. May we hold firmly to the word of life, Lord, not only for ourselves, but for the world around us as the answer to the discontentment and the brokenness that we see. May we dwell on your goodness when we are tempted to dwell on our current circumstances. And may we never forget that you are a good God whose love is never ending. May we find contentment in you instead of discontentment in our life circumstances so that we can have joy no matter what. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm